you should be able, by now, to thump your Bible, and it should spring open to Acts, right? No question about that. Acts chapter 11. You're going to get the joy and privilege of reading the greatest church plant in the history of the world. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? I want to remind you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for the nations. Every single person of the 7.2 billion people on planet earth is to be the object of our disciple-making vision. The 11,168 people groups should be in our minds when we plan missionary strategies. There are close to 3,000 people groups on the planet earth that have never heard the gospel. So this text reminds us of what God's plan is. It's really a parenthesis that's closing out. It begins in 8 chapter 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And when you pick up chapter 11 verse 19, there's your other parentheses in the bracket. And notice, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, praise God, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Somebody broke the mold, right? We don't even know who these guys are, but they broke the mold. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this, y'all remember, uh, news travels fast. The report goes back to the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people and notice this, Luke thinks it's important to add this historical note. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agapus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, determined every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. God, in chapter 10, is setting the stage for the first international church plant. If you go back to chapter 10, God is at work in one key apostle to remove bigotry and uh, nearsightedness, spiritual nearsightedness. He's working everything to get to this particular place. I would really remind you that probably the preceding 
again, in that parentheses of scattering and persecution, God is working in that parentheses to get you to chapter 11, verse 19. Now, the text tells us that there was a scattering and that we have Stephen's sermon. Do you remember that sermon in chapter 7? In my opinion, perhaps the greatest expositional sermon ever preached. It reminds us that you can preach exactly what God calls you to preach and the crowd not like it. Because when he was finished, and when he taught them that sacred space did not exist, and Jerusalem was not the only place of sacred space, what did we learn? Sacred space is wherever God's people are. And so Stephen preaches that sermon. At the end of that sermon, they're enraged against him with hostility, and they stone Stephen to death. In a sense, Stephen reminds them that the temple... And the tabernacle always pointed to this particular reality that God is present wherever his people are. Do you remember their concluding remarks? Man, you're speaking against Moses. You're speaking against the temple. And you're speaking against Jewish custom. In other words, your sermon is anti-Moses. It is anti-temple, anti-Jewish. So he is stoned to death. And as a result of that particular situation and Stephen's sermon, what happens to God's people? Those Hellenistic Jews are dispersed and they're scattered because of that sermon. Do you remember what is the unique aspect of a scattering? Well, it first has an Old Testament connotation. It's called the diaspora. You've heard that term before? You learned it in Sunday school, right? And the diaspora was an Old Testament term for the scattering of the people. Well, you remember the Babylonian captivity? That caused a dispersion, a deportation. The Assyrian captivity in the north caused the very same thing. And they were dispersed and scattered throughout all the known world. But why were they scattered? Because of their disobedience. God said, I'm going to judge you. That term, diaspora, was given. And here's the interesting thing. That terminology is picked up. That Old Testament terminology of diaspora is picked up in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, but it's not given in the same way. This dispersion was not punishment against the church. It was punishment, for the most part, against the Jewish people who would not listen to the Word of God. Furthermore, it was a scattering for God to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So in other words, God uses persecution as a catalyst to accomplish His global missionary endeavors. When you read James and you read 1 Peter, notice how both of them start. To the people of the dispersion. James says it and 1 Peter. Peter says it. Why? Because he's saying these 12 tribes of Israel and the relationship spiritually doesn't exist anymore. What does exist is the living church of God that is dispersed in the diaspora all over the world to give out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when it says in verse 19, now those who were scattered, that's what that is speaking of. It was God's missionary purpose for His church. God brought the persecution to disperse the church. Now here's the question. Well, the title of the sermon is... A model disciple-making church. 
And this is what you're going to see in this particular church that's established in Antioch. And I want to give you three components that you find in this church. Thus, there are three components that we need to make absolutely sure are in our church. Correct? If it's in this church, in Antioch, it needs to be in our church. Let me give you those components or these components together for you. The first one is this. The sovereignty of God is recognized in effective evangelism. And that's what we see in 19 through 21. God is working behind the scenes to press the people out of Jerusalem to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God is behind the working. And then we see the church responding and giving out the gospel under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you remember what Acts, 8, Acts 1 8 actually said? And when the Spirit has come upon you, you may be my witnesses, right? No, it says, You shall be my witnesses, and you will take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, what were the Jews doing? They were, they were holed up in Jerusalem, right? They were not accomplishing this. Now, you had Philip doing some of it. You had Stephen preaching. But as a general rule, they were still sitting in what they would consider the mother church in Jerusalem. And so they were huddled up in Jerusalem. They still had this Old Testament covenant mentality, which was this. Come to Israel. Come to Israel was their mentality. If you're going to be in the commonwealth of Israel, you've got to come to Israel. They were still holding that. Instead of taking Christ to the nations, their mentality was come to us. God says, I'm going to fix this missionary stall. And he fixed the stall by sending persecution upon the church. And as a necessity, when the people of God were dispersed, the number one thing on their mind was not comfort. It was not where we're going to live or how we're going to survive. The number one thing at the top of mind was we got to share Jesus, share the word as we're going. And so that's exactly what happens. Verse 19 tells us where they went. They went to Phoenicia, which would have been modern-day Lebanon. They went to Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And they also went to, which was the home of who? Barnabas, that's right. And they also went to Antioch, which was the capital province of Syria. And notice what they went to do. Speaking the word of God. That's what they were doing, right? The scattering was the sovereign, the persecution was the sovereign work of God to get the word of God scattered throughout the known world. Again, the, this was a predominant Gentile region. Where they were going was not uh, predominantly Jewish people. There were some scattered there. We know that. But this is setting the stage for full world evangelization. What a, what a wonderful understanding from the text of Scripture. Now again, think about these people were uncircumcised. They were not Jewish people. They didn't keep the special days. They didn't keep the new moon Sabbaths. They didn't observe dietary laws. They ate pork chops and bacon, and they really liked it. All right? I mean, it's, a different, it's different people. They don't hold Jewish customs. And again, think about this. 
You did. These were Hellenistic believers. These were people coming to faith in Christ. But they still held, even if they were proselytes, they still held on to certain things that were custom and tradition. And God is singularly, one by one, getting rid of these customs. But here, uh, the entire narrative of Peter watching that arc light sheet let down by the four corners and the uh, defense before the Jewish council about why he did this and why he went to Gentile. Folks, it all comes to a head in this text. This is what God is preparing Peter and all the apostles to understand that the gospel is to go to the nations. Notice it says they first began to speak the gospel to the Jews. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the Jew. Right? They've got that mentality and also to the Greeks. So what were they doing? Well, they were going into the synagogues. Because as the people were scattered, Jews would most certainly set up a synagogue. And so these men, the Hellenistic Jews, would go into the synagogue and they would share the word of God with fellow Jews that were scattered across the world. So that was the first part of evangelism. And God uses that effectively. But don't you love verse 20? But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now Luke's going to tie together Stephen's theology. He's going to tie together Cornelius' conversion. And all at once, this is what happens. Did you know that the planting of the church of Antioch is the most significant Gentile church plant in entire missionary history and activity, and especially found in the book of Acts? What an awesome understanding. Everything we see in Peter's conversion, uh, Paul's conversion, Cornelius' conversion, is paving the way for this particular church plant. And it's called a church. It's called an ecclesia. Don't you think that would have rubbed Jewish people wrong? I mean, I thought we had the onus. We, we own the monopoly on an assembly. We own the monopoly on a church. But yet the Bible calls this church in Antioch a church. What happened in Antioch was a 10.0 on the missionary Richter scale. A 10.0, just a, a slam dunk for global disciple making. And it all starts by two, unidentif uh, by two unidentified people. Isn't that awesome? Not Peter, not Paul, not Barnabas, not even a well-known disciple that we know of. But the Bible says here that there were some of them, let's say two of them, from Cyprus, Cyprus. Maybe there was five or six, but we have no name given to us. But here, these men have a burden to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond Jewish hearers. They're taking it to the ends of the earth. Where did they head? They went to Antioch. Remember the first point? We're not off of it yet. We see the sovereignty of God at work in effective evangelism. You know what? That would have been, that would have been like telling us, living in Ozark, Missouri, to go to New York City and plant a church. It would have been like telling us to go to San Francisco and, and plant a church. When God says go, when God sends them to Antioch, it's surely not Ozark, Missouri. And they're headed out. This was a pluralistic, idolatrous region. Some, some scholars called it the abode of the gods. 
There were several Greek deities that were worshipped there, including Zeus and Apollos and Adonis. Within five miles of Antioch was the city of Daphne, which was known for the worship of Artemis and Apollos. Cult prostitution was kind of the theme of the day. It was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire by this time. Now consider that, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. We forget that, how large this place is. Scholars say that the estimated population was 500,000 people. Now folks, in my day, that's a big city, right? There were 500,000 people. It was called the Queen of the East. It was cosmopolitan, and it was commercial. It was also located on the Orontes River, southeast Turkey. Once uh, Rome started steadily declining, most people would say that's what, what's happened is we've been infected by the waters flowing down from Antioch. It was that bad. It was that morally skewed. But it was also multicultural. The city served as a crossroads, had major highways going north, south, and east. Let me tell you who lived there. Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, Asians, all lived in Antioch. Folks, God doesn't make mistakes. Are you listening? He is absolutely 100% sovereign. He knew that if he sent this group there that would tell others about Christ, that this particular church would be planted in that kind of hub. And from that hub, internationally, God is going to reach the entire world. Even you and me. You would not be here today had not God not planted that church in Antioch. Because all of th- Paul's three missionary journeys come out of that church. It's an international church and it's planted by God in the midst of a corrupt place. I mean, we look at some areas and we think, man, there's no way I would go and plant a church in that area. But that's exactly where God sent them. John Stott notes, there was no more appropriate place that could have ever been imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or a springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. These guys head to the large city. They uh, understand all the overtones. Of what Antioch meant. You know that Alexander the Great conquered the entire world. And then, and then he died and the kingdom was divided into four sections. But the two dominant would have been the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty. Jews did not like Antiochus at all. Right? And of course that's what his young son named this particular place Antioch after. Keep that in your mind. There's no love loss here between the Greeks and the Jews. And yet God, through the powerful preaching of the Word. Man, I get excited about this text. Y'all may have to reel me in. But listen to this. Notice what they're preaching. They're preaching Jesus Christ is curios. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think that these Greek people anticipated a Messiah? Were they taught? Did they know anything about the Old Covenant? No, not a bit. They did not anticipate a coming Messiah at all. But these men went about preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and you must submit to his lordship and people were saved by the scores. That's awesome, isn't it? Folks, that happens because we've got a sovereign God. 
And that's what we need to notice and recognize in our evangelistic efforts. You're never going to be the first word to anybody about Jesus. You're not going to be the first touch, I mean. If somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because the God of eternity is already working in that heart. God is effectively working in that heart to get ready to hear the good news and come to faith in Christ. You can't show me a place in the Bible where that's not the case. So we need to think about that as a church. In all of our evangelistic efforts, you need to understand that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish His purpose. And that's no less the case when we get here. They're not expecting Israel's Messiah, but these guys are faithful to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, of which He is, and people come to faith in Christ. They repent. They trust Him. Folks, this is exciting, isn't it? Now, I know there's a lot of things in life to get excited about, you know, the Eagles winning the Super Bowl tonight is what we hope, right? Anybody to beat the Patriots. And we think, well, you know, we get excited about that. Folks, is there anything more exciting than for God to outstretch His mighty, powerful hand and bring people into the kingdom of God? I don't think there's anything more exciting than, just think about this, in the midst of a pagan culture, false god deities at every corner, cultic prostitution, I mean, multicultural. God puts a church right in the middle of that city. And scores of people, the text says, a great many people came to faith in Jesus. Now, I get excited when we have that trickle-down effect of maybe one or two ever so often coming to faith in Jesus. But shouldn't we pray that great scores of people will come to faith in Jesus? I want to remind you that Revelation says you're not going to be able to number the people that God is going to save. So yes, we ought to thank God when individuals are saved. But we ought to also pray and thank God when great scores of people are saved. Would it not be an awesome thing if we began to evangelize, engage people with Jesus Christ, just like these unknown men did, and to see scores of people come to faith in Jesus Christ? I'm trying to get you to see something, right? You don't have to be Peter or Paul. Your name doesn't even have to be mentioned in the Bible. But God can use you in an extraordinary way to accomplish His purpose. Right? What if we all took that seriously? Instead of just thinking that church was about coming to soak and sit. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I'm sitting on my assurance all the time. Right? Instead, we had this disciple-making understanding that if God saved you, He saved you so that you could engage this culture with Jesus Christ and teach people that He is Lord. That's why God, one of the reasons God saved you. And when all the powers of hell are unleashed against the church, remember God is at work. Right in the midst of all the persecution, it seemed like the church wasn't going to make it. Well, that's exactly what God did to cause the church to expand. Not sure if you were on a mission trip planning committee, you would have chose Antioch. You need to, we need to call it safe in the Baptist church, don't we? Let's don't go to Antioch. We might get into trouble. But Antioch will be the center of all missionary journeys from that time forth. And God places a beachhead right in the midst of a perverse pagan civilization. And it's the greatest missionary church that the world has ever known. And you didn't even know the names of the guys who first gave them the gospel. Awesome. Sovereignty of God is recognized in effective evangelism. Got two more points. Y'all okay? 
Number two, the mission of God is accomplished through dynamic discipleship. Now we learned last week that word travels fast and uh, Jerusalem gets the message. It could have been received with joy, that's highly possible, or it could have been received like, uh, what's going on down there in Antioch? We need to send out a Baptist embassy from Nashville. And we need to check out from Lifeway what's going on down there. It could have been that way, but what's so awesome is the fact that they choose someone like Barnabas. He's not an apostle. Yeah, he's a well-known disciple. We meet him in the book of Acts early on. He's an encourager, full of the Holy Spirit, loves God. Maybe they said, hey, I don't know what kind of food they're having in their Baptist potluck meals. But you better go down there and make sure they're not eating pork. I don't know, seriously, what happened. But they send Barnabas down there, and you know it has to be with a degree of evaluation. What's going on in this particular church? He's a Cyprian by birth. His nature would, would be one that was not critical or suspicious about what God is doing, but to evaluate. Now imagine if old Peter would have been sent down there. May not have been the best thing for Peter to be sent to this church, but God knows exactly what he's doing, and he sends Barnabas. F.F. F. Bruce says, a better man could not have been chosen for this delicate work. Now folks, do you think they were doing everything in this church like they were doing it back at the home church in Jerusalem? Folks, they probably had a guitar, right? I mean, they probably had one kid who had on a t-shirt that said, Jesus rules, right? I mean, come on, folks. Do you really think that this Greek church, steeped in everything they had been steeped in, were going to function and operate like the church in Jerusalem? Is that a lesson for you knuckleheads that think that everything you do in the church, they might not have used the Baptist hymnal. Oh! I mean, they may not have. Furthermore, they didn't have the Baptist hymnal. All right? They didn't have the 60-something version, the 1991 version. They didn't have any of those whatsoever. But I guarantee you they sung hymns that honored Christ. Right? They sang what honored Jesus Christ. So this was not the first church of Jerusalem. They probably didn't start at 11 o'clock. Y'all know that's why we start at 1030? Just so we don't start at 11. Right? <laughs> That's common sense. Nonetheless, look, look at these dynamic discipleship qualities. The first would be accountability. There's no question that Barnabas was sent down there for the sake of accountability. Now what if they were preaching another Christ that didn't exist? What if they were handling the doctrinal theological issues wrongly? Well, there was that sense of accountability. But when Barnabas saw the grace of God, how do you see the grace of God? Well, you see the manifestation of it in people's lives. You see the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see the inroads of grace at work in people's lives where he takes someone that's dead and makes them alive. You see the fruit of the Spirit. And as he looks at this, he sees the grace of God impacting people's lives and changing him them. He sees visible manifestations of God at work. And the Bible says he rejoiced. He didn't. He wasn't suspicious. Man, I'm not sure about that. I don't know about that guitar hanging on your shoulders. I'm not sure about all this stuff going on. He rejoices in what God is doing. And quickly, I know time's running out, not only accountability, but what about encouragement? I mean, what was the guy's gift? Barnabas was son of consolation. 
He was an encourager. And here's two things that are vitally important for a real good disciple-making church. We've got to have accountability. You can't believe just anything you want to. You have to believe, thus saith the Lord. You have to believe what the Word of God says. Furthermore, there's encouragement. And don't make this, don't limit this or push it down as something that is not important. They needed encouragement back then, and we need it now. And this is exactly what he's doing. He is initiating this congregation with his gift. He's not sitting back idly. I mean, he's definitely the major player at this point in the plan of God for this church. He is encouraging them. He didn't want to quench what God was doing, but he got into the church and began to use his gift for the sovereignty of God. The KJV says, with purpose of heart, that they should cleave to the Lord. What was he encouraging them to do? Hold fast to the Lord. Be faithful. Walk with Jesus. Don't abandon the faith. Stick with Christ. Walk with Jesus. He's building these new believers up. The Bible gives this interesting note. He does this because he's a good man. I think good men encourage saints. Good ladies. Thought she was going to get off the hook, didn't you? Good Christian ladies encourage others. And this act, the acts of encouragement flowed from the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit was working in his life. And out of his intimate fellowship with Christ, it came out of his life as, as encouragement to those who were around him. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. And so he is in this place. He's never been there before. Things are different. But what does he do? He engages that congregation with the gift given to him by the Holy Spirit of God. And check this out. God uses this man for a number of people to come to faith in Christ. And he's just simply encouraging. Now, did he teach? I'm sure he did. And I bet you he taught them this. Evangelism 101. You're called by God to share Jesus. And that's probably why uh, multitudes were coming to faith in Christ. But Barnabas' discipleship efforts apparently involved equipping and encouraging others to share their faith with their friends. Check out this. Here's the atmosphere of this church. Don't you, don't you pray? Uh, I'm not saying ours is not this atmosphere, but this is what the atmosphere needs to be. New believers are built up and encouraged in their faith, and there is joy going around because people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. That's a good atmosphere to have. New believers are sharing their faith. What does a good disciple-maker need? He needs sound theology, no doubt about it. But he also needs to be an encourager. We need that in our churches. Disciple-makers are known for stirring up in others faith and good works. That is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. That is one of the reasons why we come together to worship Christ as a church. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another as much the more you see the day approaching. It's designed that way. The next verse reminds us of our equipping instructions. Now, accountability, encouragement, is that all we need? We need to be taught the Word of God, don't we? We need instruction. Man, I'm telling you what. Oh, run out of time all the time. We need instruction, don't we? Now look, what was Barnabas' gift? He was a smart enough man led by the Holy Spirit to recognize that his gift was not instruction and teaching the Word. And so what does he do? 
Hey, well, there's a man over there in Tarsus. And if you ever read Acts chapter 9, you'll find out that God said to him, You are going to give instruction before kings and princes. And they're going to come to faith in Christ. You are going to... What did Jesus say to him? You tell Paul, you show him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. And Barnabas knew who Paul was. He knew. He had been around him. He knew that God had gifted this man to preach, thus saith the Lord, with a brilliant mind and, and theological acumen like none other. And he knew what Paul, how Paul was trained. And then he goes. And he, he goes a hundred miles away. And he brings back the Apostle Paul to this particular church. This is absolutely remarkable. Don't you think Barnabas would have thought, man, I can't leave this work. I mean, look what, I'm making a name for myself. I don't think he had that attitude, do you? He didn't have the attitude that, that my agenda and my stamp must be on this particular church in order for God to do anything. He didn't have that attitude, did he? He knew, he knew clearly that not a single servant that ever served Jesus Christ is indispensable. Go check out the cemeteries. It's full of people who thought they were indispensable. But they're not now, Right? Here's, the, here's how God works. He, he sends a servant. That servant dies. He sends another servant. But here's what he does. He recognizes how the body of Christ has to function. You need encouragement, but you also need the Word of God. And so he does that. What a critical component of disciple making. Jesus said this in the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe. That is a critical component. Paul had been in Tarsus for quite a while. You know why? They were trying to kill him for sharing Jesus. And he's there in Tarsus, and, and Barnabas knows that. He travels 100 miles, and he gets him. He brings him back to teach. God is orchestrating. Hey, folks, who was the man, pretty much singularly, that started the persecution against Christians? Say it. Saul, right? Now, who's preaching the first sermon at this new humanity, new humanity church? I mean, folks, isn't that incredible? That's grace. That's God orchestrating. The very man who started the persecution is the very man who goes to the first international church and preaches the word. That doesn't happen by happenstance, folks. That's God and God alone. Barnabas did what was best for the church. Surely he could have thought about the spotlight being on him, but no servant is indispensable in the life of God's church. You know, when I get to where I can't read the large print, when I get to where I can't cognizantly think through things and give you cognizant understanding of what the Word of God says, it's time for me to quit. If I'm 70 years old and I tell you I've got 15 more years, you better be scared. <laughs> right? You better be scared. Now, Natalie tells me all the time, well, David Jeremiah is 78 and he's preaching. Well, I'm not David Jeremiah, number one. I can't preach like he can, but the fact is, God may do that, folks, but I'm telling you, attitude must be. It's Christ's church and Christ's church alone. It started by one man. His name is Christ. And as far as I've read, he's going to be the one that's magnified through all of this. It's Jesus Christ. And so he sees what's going on. And Barnabas did what was best for the church. Just to cut to the chase, there is uh, an absolute year that they're studying the Word. Uh, Paul and Barnabas teach the people the Word of God for an entire year. And God does great and wonderful things. And note this badge of honor. They're called 
Christians first in Antioch. Scholars argue about diminutive terminology. Was this meaning to uh, put Christians down? How was the phrase used? Well, I can tell you this. Christians were not calling one another Christians at this time. That's a, that's a known fact. This came from the world at large. In other words, the term was coined by lost people. I mean, today if you're a Christian, you can win a political office. Right? I'm a Christian. Well, how do you define being a Christian? Well, the fact here is that the world looked at these people and they actually made a third classification of people. When you see the word Herodians, this is very similar. But put Christ in front of it. Christians. So it's a class of people. They so much identified with Jesus Christ that the people in the world looked at them and called them Christ ones. Little Christ ones. Let me ask you a question. Just simply by the way you live your life, when is the last time someone walked up to you and called you a Christian? Hello, Tokyo. When's the last time you were identified as a Christ one, a little Christ one, based on the fact that your vocation in life, that's what that word call means, has something to do with Jesus Christ and living for Him. That's where this came from. Maybe the greatest application for you this morning is this. Are you living worthy of that name? That's exactly what they were doing. They were living in such a worthy manner of the name of Christ that they even they, they developed a third classification. And really, it's a humanity, isn't it? It's a new humanity. It's not Jew. It's not Greek. It is Christian. It's not about race. It's about grace. Do you see how important the diversification of gifts are for the church? Or diversification is for the church? Very, very important. When everybody doing what God has called them to do in the church. And this is what we need here at First Baptist Church. Accountability. Encouragement. And the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's a disciple-making church. And that's what God has called us to be. The final thing is the grace of God is displayed in Christian generosity. Now check this out. They send a prophet down from Jerusalem. They're speaking to the people. And all of a sudden the Lord God reveals to this prophet. No doubt this prophet was apostolic uh, positioned. And he says there's going to be a famine in the land. If you look to extra biblical material, you'll find out that this particular famine happened around 47 A.D. That's not an accident. And so there's a famine in the land of Judea. It wasn't widespread, but in Judea. And here's this Gentile church that's been in existence for one year. And this Gentile church, get this, full of Gentiles, not Jews, responds with generosity. And they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to open up our pocketbooks, and we're going to send the money over, not to the Jews, but to Christian brothers and sisters. You mean, do you see what grace does to you? Grace changes your life. And grace also makes you a giver. You forget about cultural, racial, whatever boundaries that are existed out there. It would have been real easy for that church to say, Jews, man, they don't want us in the commonwealth of Israel. That's a stuck-up church over there at First Jerusalem. We're Gentiles, they're Jews. That's not what they said. Jesus makes all the difference. Doesn't he? So this church responds with generosity. That's what churches ought to have. They ought to portray this kind of generosity before the Lord. Now, let me land the plane. 
Did you know that obedience to the Great Commission, as strong as that is, make disciples? That's a strong commission to us, is it not? Nor our love for sinners because they're going to perish in hell. The wrath of God is a strong reason for us to evangelize, isn't it? I want to tell you that neither one of those two things, Great Commission nor the wrath of God, neither of those can be the major reason why we evangelize the world. Let me tell you the major reason. Because of the glory of Jesus. That's it. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to him be the power in the church throughout all ages, world without end. To him be glory in the church. Notice that. To him be glory in and through the church. That's why... The church is called to do what God calls it to do. Ultimately, it's to bring Jesus Christ glory. The Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. <clears throat> if that's the case, then we ought to be willing to do the same thing for the Lord. Why? Because every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. We ought to have that desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And let us be a disciple-making church. Aware that a sovereign God works in effective evangelism. Understand those components of what a real disciple-making church is. And by all means, be a church of generosity. Why? Because grace has changed every one of us. Amen? Father, we thank you for the gift of the Word of God. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. It's your Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And we know that. And Father, I thank you for the establishment of the International Church of Antioch and how that you would use that as a center of missiology that would go to the ends of the earth. And God, we are products of the fact that you established that church. And through all those missionary journeys... And through all the years, the gospel came to us. And God, we're so thankful for it. Now, Lord, help us to carry on and have the 7.2 billion people on our minds. Lord, the 11,000 and something people groups in this world that need to hear about Jesus. God, help us to do that. And help us to be a church that is a disciple-making church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.